It's a strange word, apologetics. But did you know that apologetics is something that Jesus Christ himself used and that we should follow his example? Apologetics doesn't mean saying you're sorry. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a reasoned defense for why one believes a particular view. Today, you'll hear about the many ways that Christ was an apologist. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is an author, speaker, and scholar who examines today's worldviews in light of biblical Christianity. Today, Pat continues a series on the apologetics of Jesus as he spoke before an audience in Dallas, Texas. And by the way, Pat's topic today is based on his book, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's a fascinating analysis of how Jesus defended his claims, answered his critics, answered questions, and his skills in reasoning and making his hearers think. The book is available at our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and you'll want to get a copy. And you'll also find at evidenceandanswers.org resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Download past shows, articles, and more. Our resources could be a real help, not only to you, but to that friend or family member who may be going through a, a period of doubt or unanswered questions. And if you have a college student in your life, they could especially benefit from the intelligent, insightful information available at evidenceandanswers.org. So go there today. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And now here's Pat Zucran with part two of The Apologetics of Jesus. Jesus demonstrated tremendous ability to reason and present compelling reasoned arguments, dispelling error and presenting a case and a defense of his life and ministry. Several philosophical principles which Jesus demonstrated in his teachings and ministry. The law of non-contradiction. Two opposite propositions cannot be true at the same time in the same way. Of course, he didn't invent that, but he definitely applied that principle. The Socratic method, escaping the horns of a dilemma, a fortiori kind of arguments, from the lesser to the greater, reductio ad absurdum. Okay? Uh, he demonstrates great ability to think and reason. Let's just take a look at a couple of these. Escaping the horns of a dilemma. Now this form of argument attempts to force a person to take one of two positions, neither of which offers a viable solution. Choosing either one, the defendant will have to admit that his premise is false. Now we see in Matthew chapter 22, and the Pharisees set him up for a trap. They put him in the horns of a dilemma. Now when you find yourself in the horns of a dilemma, what are you supposed to do? When both options are not acceptable, you've got to look for that third option. Now they come to Jesus here and they say, Teacher, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar here? And now they think they got him. Because if Jesus says no, don't pay taxes, well he's a traitor to Rome. If he says, well, well, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. They know that coins have uh, uh, an emblem of uh, a portrait of Caesar declaring him as divine. And so that would be a betrayal to the Jewish people as well. Neither option is a viable option. He's caught in the horns of a dilemma. And what does he do? Well, goes right for that third option. He says, bring me a coin. Whose portrait is it on there? And they say, well, Caesar's. And he says, well, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's? To God what is God's. And he, in a brilliant way, he escapes the horns of a dilemma. 
The other one, they come to him about marriage and the resurrection. They say, yeah, a man, uh, a, a woman marries a man, he dies, and then she marries the brother, and all seven brothers die at the resurrection. You know, who's, whose wife is she going to be? You know, and they think they got him in the horns of a dilemma, and he escapes the horns of a dilemma in a brilliant, brilliant way. Uh, those kinds of dilemmas are often presented to the Christian. You face some of those, haven't you? And I remember I was in California, and I was presented a question. I was with a bunch of college students, and they said, one guy stood up and said, "I got a question for you." I said, "Sure, what is it?" He said, "Is God good?" because there's a standard of good by which he follows or is God good because whatever he says is good is good okay now what he's concluding is this if there's a standard of good which God follows then there's something greater than God then he's not sovereign and supreme well if whatever God says is good then good is simply arbitrary God can say rape is good one minute and turn around and say it's not good the next minute okay and can be changing so which one is it alright and they thought they had me in the horns of a dilemma. It's a famous one called Euthyphro's or Euthyphro's dilemma. And what do you do when you're in the horns of a dilemma? And two options are not acceptable? Well, you look for that third one. Okay? And I said, well, it's neither. And they said, well, what is it? I said, well, God is good. He is the ultimate good and He's always consistent with His nature. So it's not arbitrary and he is the ultimate standard of good so there's nothing above him uh, often you'll find yourselves in the horns of a dilemma and therefore you gotta do what Jesus did escape the horns of a dilemma reductio ad absurdum this you demonstrate that if some premise the person has is true if you take it to its logical conclusion it leads to contradiction which is absurd okay, so then one would end up concluding that the original premise is ultimately false. Okay, so the argument begins with the premise of your opponent, then you take it to its logical conclusion, and if you took it to its logical conclusion, you realize it's contradictory, it's absurd. Right, where does Jesus demonstrate this? Well, he demonstrates this in Matthew chapter 12, okay, verses 22 through 28. Jesus delivers a demon-possessed boy and the leaders come up to him and says, well, do you know how this guy delivers demons? Well, he does it by the power of the devil, of Beelzebul. And he says in verse 22, then, he, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. He healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed. Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard of it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and here's where he does reductio ad absurdum. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So he said, let's take your conclusion, let's take it to its obvious conclusion. And what do you have? Satan casting out Satan. That's absolutely absurd. And he reveals their false thinking and is able to defend his claim uh, by which he does miracles. You know, I remember just this past week, I teach every week, I have the tough duty of getting on a plane and flying to the island of Maui. There to teach at Calvary Chapel Bible College. So I teach there all day in Maui at Calvary Chapel Bible College. And then someone picks me up 
takes me to dinner and then I go to Hope Chapel, Maui and I teach apologetics at, to the people there at Hope Chapel, Maui. Tell me, people are hungry for apologetics, uh, for the teaching of the Word of God out there in the Pacific and in Asia. And so then I'm teaching for three, four hours there at uh, Hope Chapel, Maui, and then I jump on the midnight flight and I go back, fly home to Honolulu. Well, there's an atheist, George, from Russia, who attends my class at Hope Chapel, Maui. And he's from Russia, and he's so obnoxious about his position. You know, and he'll always sit in the front row. I don't know why, you know, but he'll always sit in the front row. And as I'm teaching, he'll just lean back, oh, oh, oh. And then as I continue, then he leans over in pain, like, oh, oh, oh. And by half of the class, he walks out. Does it every night, every Tuesday night. We go through this ritual. But uh, he attends every Sunday service, and he comes to my class on Tuesday nights, and he even, uh, he and his buddy uh, often drive me to the airport there in Maui. And so, you know, um, we get into these dialogues all the time. And, you know, he was talking about how foolish Christianity is and how absurd and foolish it is. I said, really? How did you come to that conclusion that it is absurd? He said, oh, you believe in this SOB and you pray to this SOB and he answers your prayer and, you know, all this. Like you pray to some uh, big uh, fairy godmother and, you know, the tooth fairy and all this kind of stuff. So I said, okay, great. I said, let's take it that atheism is true. God does not exist. He does not exist. We are an accident in time and space. Okay? There's no intended design or intention for us to be here. I said, then what is the meaning of life, George? Why do you wake up every morning? And he thought about it for a while. And I said, what's going to happen to you someday, George? He said, well, I'm going to die. I'm going to rot. I said, yeah, what's going to happen to all of mankind? He said, well, mankind will one day become extinct. And I said, well, and as the universe expands and reaches its states of final entropy, what's going to happen? He said, well, the universe is going to die. And I said, the only sure hope you have is your extinction, okay, annihilation. So what is the meaning of life, George? Why do you keep getting up in the morning? And he thought about it for a while and he goes, well, it's, it's absurd, it's meaningless. And I said, yeah. I said, you live in a meaningless world. I said, why do you come here every, every uh, Sunday and every Tuesday? I said, you attend more church stuff than the, most Christians do, you know, churches in America. And he thought about it, he said, well, it's absurd, it's meaningless. I said, absolutely. And so he, he was quiet all the way to the airport. And I said, you're going to have to admit, your life is ultimately meaningless. Without God, the only sure hope you have is your annihilation and annihilation of man. All the works you've done end up in complete annihilation. And he thought about it. Finally, when we got to the airport, I was getting my bags and I said, great talking to you, George. And he goes, meaningless, meaningless conversation. It's a useless conversation. <laughs> and I said, you don't mean that, George. He said, sure I do. Meaningless conversation. And I said, you don't mean that. He said, sure I do. I said, then what you just said has no meaning. Huh? And he thought about it for a while. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe so. And I said, then why are you having this conversation with me? You know? And so he thought about it for a while. And I stared at him there at the car. And before I closed the door, I said, George, why do you come here to church? All the time? Why do you come? I mean, you're really searching for something, aren't you? And he said, no, I'm a parasite. I just come for the free food. You know, I'm like a parasite. And I said, no, George, you're really coming because you're searching for truth. And you know this is the only place you find it. And he said, oh, no, I'm just a parasite. I come for the donuts and coffee. Goodbye. And he closed the door and went on his way. Okay? That's the example of, you know, reductio ad absurdum a method that Jesus used in refuting false teaching, 
some that we Christians also need to master as well. Well, second to the last point, I want to cover some alleged anti-apologetic passages. Now, wherever I go, many people say, well, we don't need apologetics. Apologetics is not necessary. Uh, and they'll point to some verses that supposedly show that Jesus was against apologetics. That Jesus really wanted a blind leap of faith. Faith does not ask for evidence. That's actually contrary to biblical faith. I'm not going to go over all these verses, maybe just two of the popular ones here. Matthew chapter 12, Pharisees come up to Jesus. And it says here that some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that's it, see? And so people look at you and say, Ah, you see, these guys wanted evidence. Jesus said, You wicked and evil generation, no evidence is going to be given to you. Alright? And so, you see, Jesus didn't want uh, reason and evidence. That's contrary to what Jesus, He just wanted you to believe. And to demand reason and evidence and apologetics, that's contrary to what Jesus and the apostles taught. Well, what's going on here in chapter 12? Of course, taking a look at the context. This is in the second year of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had done numerous ministries, uh, miracles, already in his ministry. Done numerous miracles. And they come to him and say, hey, we want to see another miracle. Okay? Well, Jesus knew they were not asking an honest question here. They were not honestly seeking to understand who Jesus was. And that's why Jesus says, you evil and adulterous generation, no sign will be given to you except for the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus wasn't saying it's evil to want evidence and reasons. He's just saying you're not looking for it honestly. So you're not going to get any except for the resurrection. So despite all that Jesus had done, they still come to him and demand that he perform a sign for them. Knowing the hardness of their hearts, simply, move, simply says, hey, none will be given to you. Okay? And, you know, there's a great lesson in that as well. You know, as we're doing evangelism, there are some people who are honestly asking questions. And there are others who come with dishonest reasons. And as Jesus said, don't cast your pros before swine. If they're coming with dishonest reasons, you don't have to sit there and argue with them and try to convince them when they don't want to hear what you have to say. And you can just move on and say, when you're ready to enter into a, a good discussion, we'll get back and talk. Uh, I made that mistake several years ago in Hawaii. A girl had invited her atheist boyfriend to come to uh, one of the apologetic conferences that we had. And I was speaking about the existence of God. And then we opened the floor up for questions, and he said, you know, I got a question. I said, sure, what is that? He said, well, uh, how do you explain the ark? How how Noah get all the animals in the ark? There's over a million species of insects. You know, how did that guy build a build a uh, cage for fleas and, you know, all these kinds of things? And I said, well, okay, here's the answer. You know, he doesn't need to build, you know, uh, cages for insects. Where there are mammals, there's insects, okay? And in the ark... You know, roaches can run around. You don't need to build cages for them. And I said, in the vegetation that's floating. Uh, and he, he looked and he said, okay, well, well, what about waste? Huh? Is there, a, there a toilet system in there? 
I said, no, you do what they do in Navy sometimes, you know, just throw it overboard, you know. And besides that, you know, he could put a lot of the animals in hibernation. Well, how, do you, how do you get all the animals uh, on the ark? There's too many of them. I said, no, you know, all he needs to bring is one of each, you know. He doesn't have to bring every type of dog there is, just probably one type, maybe, maybe like a wolf. And that's it. And he can fit on two stories of the ark, and the third one is for him and his family. And then he said, well, okay, well, well with, with water covering the earth, the water temperature changes, and the algae and the bacteria in the oceans have catastrophic implications. Uh, and I kept trying to answer him. That's where I fell in. I made a mistake. Hey, I just simply needed to stop right there and just say, look, you're not asking me honest questions. You're simply trying to justify your atheism. Until you're ready to uh, engage in intelligent discussion, really listen to what I have to say. You know, I think I've answered enough of your questions. I could have just moved on. But I fell into that trap there. Hey, but even Jesus understood. There comes a point where, you, don't have, you know, it's useless to keep presenting and discussing with a guy that doesn't want to hear what you have to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So often people say, aha, see, there you go. The natural man can't understand the spiritual things, for he's, uh, and so therefore, all the reason and evidence that you throw at him uh, won't make a difference because he's not born again in the Spirit and he won't understand it anyway. It says here, for the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. Now, I got the English Standard Version, and that's a great translation right there, does not accept. The Greek word there is dekomai, and it means to receive or to welcome. He does not welcome the spiritual truths of the Word of God. He is resistant to them. It's not that he cannot understand them. Okay? It's that he does not welcome them. All right, according to Romans chapter 1, the things of God may be known by the things that he has made so that all men are without excuse. The unsaved man can't understand truth and the truths about God. He just does not welcome them. So the problem is not the mind. It's not human reason. The problem is the heart. Again, remember, okay, God does not bypass the mind to speak to the heart. Okay, so uh, we use apologetics, reason, and evidence to convince the mind, and that's what. And uh, the heart will not commit to what the mind is not convinced of. The surrendering of the will to what he knows is true—that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that comes in. So you can take, bring a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. But you certainly can salt his oats. Okay? And that's what apologetics does. Uh, the Holy Spirit works through the evidence and the reason to bring a man to surrender his heart to the will of Jesus Christ. Well, let's end with this. Our life applications. And what is it that we can take away from what we've learned about the apologetics of Jesus? Well, number one, since apologetics was essential in Jesus' ministry, how much more must it be in our day today? Any ministry that hopes to be relevant in our post-Christian culture must be able to do three things really well. You've got to be able to proclaim truth in a powerful, compelling manner that is relevant for the culture you are in. Number two, you've got to be able to defend that message it is going to come under opposition. And number three, you've got to be able to live out that truth. 
in such a compelling way that is different. The world cannot ignore your message. Uh, truth is often challenged by opposing ideas. Jesus' message was challenged by the ideas of his culture and often he had to demolish those ideas and defend his claim to be the divine Son of God. Hey, any ministry that wants to be relevant in our post-Christian culture today has got to be able to do those three things. I was in San Jose speaking at a church, uh, church retreat, and when I was done, uh, I was having dinner with the adults who I was speaking to, and the youth pastor was meeting with the youth behind me. And they, you know, we hadn't met each other, and so they called the youth pastor over, and he came and he met with me, and we were talking. And the youth pastor had grabbed from seminary, and so we uh, were talking, and he said, you know, uh, we really don't need apologetics. Teens don't need apologetics. They need someone to love them. And that's what it's all about. And I've learned more and more, you know, in my 15 years of youth ministry, you know, that uh, teens don't need apologetics. They don't need reason and evidence. They just need someone to love them. You know, I said, is that right? He said, yeah. I said, oh, okay. You know, that's fine. And so he went back to talk to the youth. Okay, and he was talking to them about love, sex, and dating. Of course, every youth camp, right? Love, sex, and dating. So I'm talking to them. It wasn't more than five minutes later, he came over and tapped me on the shoulder. He said, uh, excuse me, uh, we need you at the youth table. Uh, I said, well, why do you need me at the youth table? He said, well, I was giving them the biblical principles of love, sex, and dating. And they said, well, how do we know the Bible is true? Why should I follow the Bible? And I looked over and I said, oh. I said, we do need apologetics, huh? And he said, just get over to the table. <laughs> I said, I'll be there in a few minutes. Okay, so I finished my meal. And uh, I was still talking to the adults. And he came back and goes, <clears throat> Uh, like I said, we need you at this table right now. And I, I'll be there. I'll, I'll be right there. And I kept talking to the adults, and he came back another minute later. He said, uh, Pat, I said we need you at this table. And I was like, oh, okay. And the adults were like, go, go, go. So I uh, went over there. Hey, if any ministry is going to be relevant today, you've got to be able to proclaim a good message, but you also got to be able to defend that message well. Next, remember, the heart does not commit to what the mind is not convinced of. We're asking people to surrender their will, their life, and to bow their knee to a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, who died a criminal's death on a cross. You better have good, compelling reasons why they should believe your message. Finally, in a post-Christian culture, it's not enough to simply present the gospel. Often, you need compelling reasons why they should take your message seriously. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The message of the gospel never occurs in isolation. The message of the gospel is presented in the context of a culture and the ideas of the culture, often which compete and go against, oppose the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And often you are going to have to demolish strongholds, false ideas and arguments out there before people will take your message seriously. And that requires good reason thinking and understanding apologetics. Uh, in the West today, in our culture today, people view Christianity as an irrelevant religion filled with myths and other absurdities. And often before they're going to seriously listen to your message, you're going to have to present a good case why they should take your message seriously. 
And finally, Christians, especially young believers, need to know there is substance behind their faith. And emotional faith is only going to take you so far. Sooner or later, your faith will be challenged, and a faith built upon emotion cannot withstand the contrary experiences we may encounter, the difficulties, or the well-reasoned arguments of those who oppose Jesus Christ. There are clear statistics out there from the Southern Baptists that 80% of young people who graduate from high school abandon their faith after four years of college. The Christian Post says that figures anywhere from 65 to 90 percent. And there were times in my life when I faced incredible hardship and it was only knowing that my faith is true and the evidence is undeniable that kept me from walking away from Jesus Christ. So in our post-Christian culture today, we've got to be able to proclaim the truth, defend the truth, and live out the truth. Apologetics was a key part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It must be an essential part of ministries today. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. And don't forget, you can get this entire series at evidenceandanswers.org, as well as Pat's book he's been talking about, The Apologetics of Jesus. Get a copy today. And if you appreciate this show, a program that offers straightforward, intelligent evidence and answers, then please support us financially and prayerfully. Your support helps us stay on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world, from colleges and universities to countries where Christianity is forbidden and persecuted. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on the donate button. Or just send us a note let us know you're listening. It would be a huge blessing for us to hear from you today. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker.